Welcome to the Paragold Podcast. This is Jared Pickney, and I'm joined today by Paragold firefighter Greg Webb. Greg, thanks for coming on. You betcha. So you have completed a half Ironman that involved you swimming in the Mississippi River in 45-degree weather. You've won a ton of mountain bike races and completed in multiple ultra marathons, including the Leadville 100, which is a 100-mile mountain bike race through the Rocky Mountains. That's pretty incredible. Yes. So let's just start here. Um, Why are you the way that you are. So tell me your story. Where did you come from and, and how did you get to where you are gotcha. today? Gotcha. I actually grew up in St. Louis and you know, I was a big city boy, but my, I was raised by my grandparents and my grandma was from Cardwell, Missouri and my grandpa was from Lake City and he worked at General Motors and when he retired, they retired back to Paragould, to the area. And so I come with them. So I come here and I went to Grove at age 12 and uh, then it... We became Ridgecrest, graduated from Ridgecrest. When did you graduate? What year? 88. 88. 88. So I'll be 51 this year. So, and anyway, uh, met my wife, Kim, in school, high school sweethearts. This year we'll be married 31 years. Got one daughter, uh, Hannah, and she lives in Little Rock. She married Blake Howard, and uh, she's in her last semester of law school. So she is fixing to be, take the bar and hopefully pass that, and I have no doubt she'll do that. But anyway, grew up uh, in the city, and which I was always into cycling when I was a kid. But, you know, if you think back, which you all probably can't, but I can, early 70s was when BMX bikes took off. I mean, that yeah, was man. it. BMX was it then. And, uh, <clears throat> and of course, in the city, you've seen kids with, you know, BMX bikes. And I actually had a friend that actually raced BMX bikes when we were kids. And so, of course, everybody, all of us wanted BMX bikes. And uh, so as a kid, I always had a bike growing up. And then uh, moved down here to the country. I wanted a (laughs) three-wheeler. You know, I lived on a gravel road. Bikes were useless. (laughs) BMX bikes. That can get you very far. Exactly. (laughs) And so anyway, uh, you know, growing up from 12 to 16, you know, it was three-wheeler continuously. And then, you know, of course, in the cars then. And, you know, cycling was just totally – wasn't even on the radar. Yeah. And – then went to college for three years. Actually went to work at Monroe for I worked at Monroe for ten years before I got on the fire department. And uh a buddy at Monroe actually got into mountain biking because another guy at Monroe was into mountain biking. Who are, who are those guys? Mike Blackford. You know Mike Blackford? I don't. And he's a fireman too. Yeah, okay. But you know, it, anyway, we'd come into the line on Monday mornings and he's I'd be like, Hey, what'd you do this weekend, Mike? And he said, Well, I went to uh, Northwest Arkansas did a mountain bike race, and I was yeah. like, "Wow, no kidding!" You know, and that rocked on. I did. I showed zero interest in it forever. He did it for probably a year or so. Yeah. How old were you at that point? I at that time would have been twenty six, twenty seven. Okay, probably. So you never mountain bike. Never mountain bike point. up to that point, and him just talking about it naturally. You know, I'd come in, "Hey, how'd you do this weekend?" You know, and he was making the circuit and racing. And then one day he said, he said, I got a spare bike. He said, come ride with us. You know, so I'm like, all right. So one day after work I go and, you know, just T-shirt, just pair of regular athletic shorts, you know, tennis shoes. Like, to, if I see. <laughs> it's like you look like you're going to play basketball. Exactly. And uh, anyway, he gives me a helmet and a bike and, you know, they just take <laughs> off down and trail, you know. Because, you know, the appeal to mountain biking to me, I thought that's kind of cool, you know, because you know, I love being outside. I love to hunt. And I thought that's got to be cool riding trails on a bike, you know, just back to like when you were a kid, you know, and 
anyway, get out there and they, and of course, like everybody does, well, the group I run with, if you're the guy that we invite you to out, we're going to destroy you the first day. You know what I mean? And it's just a man, a guy thing. You know what I mean? Like, okay, let's put you in your place, you know. And, and of course, they did it to me, and I come back, my helmet's all crooked, you know. I'm like, I am beat. This is stupid, you know. With your gym shorts on. Exactly. With my gym shorts, butt hurting. I mean, you know, the first, you know, for people that haven't sat on a bike seat for any length of time, your butt is very tender if you don't wear the right shorts. And it still gets tender also. But anyway, it destroyed me. And uh, and then, like, you know, it rocked on maybe a week or two later, and I was like, I'm going to do that again. And then like did it again. so and, good. Exactly, you know. And second and third time, it whooped me really good. Don't get me wrong, wiped out a lot. But there were spurts of it that was pretty fun. You know what I mean? The, the little downhill sections that you were flowing through the woods and stuff. And I was like, this is pretty fun, you know. But still the physical part, going in there, being totally out of shape and uh, getting into mountain biking, it was physically, it was killing. So you weren't in shape then? Not at all. Not at all. First time I was on a bike because I hadn't, well, I tell you, I may running just slightly. Like I could remember probably just a couple years before that running a mile and thinking, wow. I just ran a mile without stopping, you know, and thinking that is huge, you know. And, and you were like, how old then? Oh, I was mid twenties, you know, because I hadn't run since college. I took some uh, PE elective, you know, and we had to run for it and get in decent shape. And uh, anyway, but you know, just through the course of you know how it go, or a lot of people just once you get out of school, you become inactive sure. for a while. You know what I mean? You're used to that hustle and bustle, you know, and then. You know, you go to work, get set into that thing, and, you know, physical activity is really not on anybody's radar. And uh, so, anyway, go out first time, and I think, well, I'm going to, you know, just usually the beginning of the year, I got to lose some weight, got to do something, you know, and yeah. get out and run, you know, a couple hundred yards and go, okay, <laughs> I made effort at it, but eventually made it a mile and thought, that's amazing, I ran a mile. <laughs> you know, without stopping, I ran a mile, you know. and But anyway, that mountain bike bug, it caught me. You know, and it was, you know, it was the coolest thing, you know, and just in which I was always used to seeing semi-cheap bikes. You know what I mean? Like, uh, you know, back in the day, a mongoose was, you know, pretty awesome, you know. Yeah, but man. nowadays, you, I look at one of Walmart and I go, I wouldn't ride that piece of junk for nothing. <laughs> you know what I mean? But when I, you know, you look at one of them high-end bikes and go, that's cool. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's just cool. Yeah, and, man. you know, anyway, we rocked around <clears throat> for a while and he let me ride that bike for a while. And it wasn't long. I'm on eBay looking for bikes. You know, I've got the bug. And lo and behold, I buy one. You're still in the mid-20s at this point or late 20s? I'm in late 20s now. Okay. So I probably bought my first bike when I was 27, probably 20, okay. 27, 28, because I didn't do my first mountain bike race until I was 29. And uh, anyway, rocked around there for a year or two, and they're like, you know, and then I'm starting to get in better shape, and, you know, and, like, I'm right on their wheels. So I'm, you know, they race, and I'm right there with them, you know. So they talk to me and say, hey, you got to go race. And I'm like, you know, and they were still hitting the circuit, and I'm like, Okay, let's go. And so the first race I did was Craighead Forest. And uh, I remember I was nervous, you know, because I think I was 28 when I did my first race. At, you know, Craighead used to have a race every year. You know, Gearhead sponsored it. And, you know, we lined up. And uh, you went down the hill. You did a sharp turn and then straight up a hill. And uh, I didn't know how to race, but they told me get out front and stay there. So I'm like, <laughs> okay. That sounds like a good strategy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Get to first place and don't lose this position. <laughs> exactly. So that's what they, what I tried to do, you know, blew down the hill. And there's no telling what my heart rate was, but 
not knowing how to properly <laughs> race, blow down the hill, make that sharp right, and just ride up into the turn to climb that hill. And I was in a big, you know, I was in a bigger rain. Snap my chain. I mean, not. I didn't make an eighth of a mile in my first race and just snapped my chain. Oh, and I come walking back up the hill and they looked over and like, what are you doing? You know, but that was my first race experience. But anyway, the bug was there after that. And uh, what did you like about it so much? The, co- the competition, first of all. Okay. And just, you know, the wood, I mean, it's just cool to be on bicycles going through the woods at speed. You know what I mean? It's just. Yeah. Take the take like a people that love riding motorcycles on trails. Yep. It's that same feeling without the noise. But don't get me wrong, when you get to a climb, there's effort there. But when you're on a long downhill just flying through the trees, it's a it's an adrenaline dump. Yeah. It man. really is. I think I would really enjoy that part if I could just always be going downhill. <laughs> yeah. Is there any races that I can do that are like that? Uh well, yes, there is. But you start on top of a mountain and it's yeah. You got to watch that on YouTube. I forgot what that race is called, but it's downhill. It's in the Alps somewhere, and it starts at the top of a ski resort. Yeah. And like the first couple thousand feet in elevation, you're still in the snow, and people are just wiping out everywhere. <laughs> but it's cool. It's just a downhill sprint is all it is for miles. I mean, you're going for miles. You're going downhill. But it's pretty cool. But it's out there for you if you want it. Yeah, man. I was looking so. for not necessarily like on a mountain, maybe <laughs> yeah. Crowley's Ridge. Yeah. Because so. the problem with Crowley's Ridge is if you're going downhill, you're going to be doing a flat sooner or later. So, you ain't <laughs> got too far to coast downhill. So Yeah. So, all right. So, you start. Where did the uh, competitive mindset come from? Did you get that from your you, grandparents? Did you get that? You from- know, not really. You know, because just the age difference with me and my grandparents, we weren't super close. You know what I mean? Just didn't have a lot in common. Yeah. And I don't really know where that come from. But uh, – and I think more it's more in somebody telling me I can't do something. Yeah. And I'm like, watch me prove you wrong. And I think it's that more that I want to be right. Yeah. It, yeah, pretty much. And, well, my adult life. You know, when I was a kid, I was pretty shy. You really? Know? And a little bit introverted, really. really. I mean, you know, big crowds kind of freak me out. Yeah. But – and for, you know, I'm just as happy riding in a big group is riding by myself in the middle of nowhere by myself. I'm I'm cool with that just as good as I am. I, and I do enjoy riding with other people, don't get me wrong. But, you know, I'm just as comfortable doing 60, 70 miles all by myself. Well, I want to talk more about the Leadville 100 here in a little bit. But you currently serve as a firefighter. Yep. Um, for our city. Would love to talk a little bit about that. I know for most boys, they dream of at least at some point being a firefighter. You know, as you say, it's oh, yeah. really cool. Yeah. Is it, as, is it as cool as it seems? Uh, what exactly does that look like to be a firefighter? Talk, talk us through. There, okay. Yeah, just kind of your typical week or typical shift. Tip, okay, how we work, we work 24 on, 48 off. So, like, I got off at 6 o'clock this morning, and I went in 6 o'clock Sunday morning. And we just do that rotation all through the year. So, every third weekend, I'll have the weekend off. But I work Friday, Monday. And, you know, we get eight days of vacation a year in every ninth shift we get what's called a five day or a kelly day and the reason why we call it five day to keep us in the pay cycle is cheaper for the city to hire an extra firefighter and him work regular time instead of us working overtime mm-hmm. because without the kelly day the way our pay periods fall that'll throw us into overtime and so we get a five day about once a month is how that works so we get five days off in a row once a month so we get a lot of time off 
And so, and that's why most of us have a second job. Hmm. So I, I do construction on my second job. Okay. And so yeah. basically I work two full-time jobs. I wow. mean, uh, what do you do in the construction world? Uh, like right now, working on a building for Chris Bass, redone all Josh's buildings here downtown, really? but pour a lot of concrete, a lot of remodeling. Where'd you learn how to do all that? Uh, just picked it up over the years, you know, and it's, it's weird how, and it, don't get me wrong, it's, some things are very complicated, but once you have a basic skill set, you can really widen that thing out. Once you learn how things are built, it don't take long to figure out, okay, it's, it's not all that hard. And for some people it is, but for me it's just, and I tell you what is so funny, and I never, ever, ever believe this. When we were about <clears throat> 14 or so, we took a little test at Oak Grove, kind of gearing you toward where your interests peak, your interests peak in what kind of job you might want to have. And, you know, it's a little survey thing you filled out, and then, you know, you get to the results back. And it put me as a carpenter. I said, there's, really? Because there was zero interest in carpentry. What whatsoever. did you want to do when you were that age? What did I, you think? I didn't you have a clue. Do? I made it through three years. I would have had a degree if I ever picked something out. <laughs> I bet after three years of going to college, I'm like, I don't have a you clue. You didn't what know I'm, what you wanted to do, nothing. but you're like, I just don't want to be a carpenter. Yeah. I, yeah. I was like, you know, because that never was on my radar until I thought about it later in life and I'm doing all this carpentry work. And I thought, you know, I, I don't we know what to, that test was. We need was. to get the name of that test. Yes. I don't know what that was, but apparently that was pretty accurate. You know, <laughs> That's so. awesome. but anyway, back to the fire department. And so. You know, we get a Kelly day, so we get a lot of time off. But with that time off, most people have a second job. So we stay, most of us stay really, really busy. And, you know, we go on it, in which all shifts are kind of, they're a little different. You know, and I'm around the same group of five guys 24 hours a day, every third day. And then, you know, if, and the way we get calls for structure fires, you know, I carry a pager. Like, say, today, I would go back and fight fire. You know, the days that I'm, depending where, you know, we've got enough firefighters now that a couple guys on shift will fight fire. But in the past, for years up until probably, it's probably longer than I think now, but probably three to four years ago, we started making this change a little bit. But the days that you're off duty are the days that you fight fire and the days that you're at the station, you just basically get the trucks there. So, you know, we used to run minimal. You know, we used to have just three guys at number one. One was in the pickup, one was in a pumper, one was in a rescue truck. And our job was to get that equipment to the fire so the guys coming in that carry a pager off shift are coming in to fight the fire. Mm. And so, but now we got a couple guys now that actually the front end guys that are on shift, you know, that, ex, that five that we have now, two of those would actually pack up and start fighting fire immediately. You know, once we get there, yeah. we're not waiting on anybody. Yeah. We're gearing them two up to get them to go in and, yeah. you know, fight fire. <clears throat> but anyway, as far as love those guys, but every shift's a little bit different. But, you know, the way our shift functions, you know, it we basically we get there at 6, and from 8 to 5 is basically our busy time or do our daily chores or our our daily stuff that we do and after five is kind of our time five till the next morning so we basically try to work eight hours a day but if we're up all night we're just up all night and you know now that we've started running medical runs like last night we had i think two runs so i was up twice last night in the middle of the night a you know, medical run yeah see we run 
several we do first responder okay. emt okay you gotcha. know so mo- a lot of you know because we run out with ambulance now on life threat life threat stuff you know shorter breath cardiac trauma car wrecks stuff like that we run out with them now and so we try to keep an emt in the pickup you know first out and then we try to keep an emt in the rescue because if the pickup is out during or doing a medical run or whatever the rescue will pick up the slack and take mm-hmm. the next medical run so like the two shifts prior to our shift, which would have been Friday shift, Saturday shift, and we come on Sunday, Friday, Saturday, both those shifts had 14 runs. And used to at the fire, we used to not have 14 runs a month. And that was, you know, and that was when we were doing alarms and actual structure fires, car fires, dump fire, dumpster fires, grass fires. We wouldn't have 14 a month back then. But now we're running, I think last year we almost hit 4,000 runs on the year. What's, what's changed? Well, we've picked up medical runs. Okay, and so, so the medical was... the medical run side, in which all fire service across the country, believe it or not, <clears throat> via either it is uh, awareness, code enforcement, we're getting better at building structures and not having as many fires through education. There's a lot of different things that the fire service in the past, which was huge, is slowly on the fire side is getting slower and slower because we're actually we're doing really good at mm-hmm. putting ourselves out of work, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And you know, because when I first got on, we had a downtown fire every year. You know, for years we had at least one downtown fire every year. We haven't had a downtown fire in seven, eight years, maybe, maybe longer. And 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 I tell you, this year was the first year that we've had fatalities, a fatality fire in four or five years. Also, mm-hmm. we've already had. I think we've had three fatalities this year already. Wow. And that's like residents? Yeah. Yeah. Man. And it's uh what what is that um what is that like uh, for you <clears throat> as a firefighter? I mean, I tell you it's in since we've started running medical, you wouldn't think that a person can get used to death. But especially when you're not around it a lot, but I hate to say this, but we're around it a lot. We're around a lot of dead people. And to say you get used to seeing death, you actually kind of do, which is sad to say that you get used to seeing it, but you actually do. And, yeah. you know, and some of us handle it better. I, death used to freak me out. Dead people, honestly, it just wigged me out. But through being around it so much, you just kind of get used to it. And not saying you get hardened from it, mm-hmm. but you almost compartmentalize it. You know what I mean? And some guys are better at it than mm-hmm. others. You know, some guys, some stuff really bothers them. And, you know, there's some stuff that really bothers me, and I don't want to see it. And, sure. But, but you kind of compartmentalize it. You kind of, okay, that was at work today. You try not to, you know what I mean? You, you may be dealing with, you know, a horrible death one minute, and then 10 minutes later you're cutting up with the guys. You know what yeah, I mean? Man. And it's just, it's, it's a weird thing to think that you can get used to that, but you really kind of do. Yeah. It's bizarre how the mind works that way. And, yeah. and, you know, I've talked with World War II vets, and my grandfather was one of them. And I've heard him say things like, yeah, you know, eventually, like, you know, you look at a human body, and it's almost like whenever you were a kid and you saw a dead dog or something, and it's just like, God, like, I can't even imagine, can't imagine getting to that place. Right. But it's, I guess, when you got a job to do. Yeah. It's, I mean, right. I mean, you're you're there to do your best and to help. You know what I mean? And it's just yeah. part of 
because up until we started running metal, we were, you know, we had, you know, a few fatalities in the past and dealing with, you know, really bad car wrecks and stuff like that. But since we started doing the medical side, we're seeing a lot, you know, because, yeah. you know, we're first in, you know, 911 call, hey, my mom or dad or husband or wife, they're not breathing, you know. And, yeah. You know, we're the first ones jumping in there. Yeah. And it seems and, so, you know, brutal. Like if you're the person who's lost someone, you know, like that, that person is everything to you, but it, you can't really get that emotionally involved in it, right? Because you, you get that emotion involved in it, you're going to make bad decisions, yes. right? Right. I mean, I just think about right. times in my life where I've had near, I've, I've had loved ones around me who've had near death experiences and just, you don't think logically Absolutely. And that, when that yes. happens, because you're so emotionally yes. involved. And so it's almost like, I just right. wonder if that's what the brain does. It's like, okay. Like you got a job to right. do. And, and you know, and it is back to training a little, quite a bit, I guess, because you're going, you know, there's this whole thing outside of you that's happening. People crying, people being upset, but you're focused on, okay, I got to do this, 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 and this, you know, trying to do the steps to hopefully mitigate this situation to make it better. You know what I mean? So your mind's going, you're trying to think and you're trying, you know what I mean? It's yeah. a, you do kind of, kind of have to almost put your blinders on and focus on task at hand. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's a, it's a, sometimes it can be a crazy thing. Uh, yeah. How many years you've been doing this? Well, as a volunteer at Oak Grove for six, seven years. And then I've been full-time with Paragold. This has been my 18th year. Wow. So I've been in it for almost 25 years now. What's the uh, biggest fire you remember? Uh, biggest? Well, I tell you, <clears throat> size-wise, Martin's Brocken gear was probably the biggest. Oh, yeah. When was that? That is probably longer than what I think it is. It seems like it was five or six years ago, but yeah, they've rebuilt. Been it's been way longer than that probably. But because I think that fire, we were there flowing water, I think, for 27 hours. 27 hours? Yeah. But what's crazy is that come in, a person called just smoking the area, in which I can remember this specific, just like it was yesterday, but it stormed that night, early in the morning. There's a big line of storms come through because lightning started that fire. And uh, there a call come in, there was a lot of smoke in the area. Not, you know, nobody was reporting any fire anywhere. And I can remember that, I think it was A-shift, the A-shift come in, no, a shift was on because it come in maybe four or five o'clock in the morning, almost shift change, and uh, there was heavy smoke coming out of Martin, and you know getting there, and uh, <clears throat> just watching that fire progress that night, you know, and just it's such a huge area, and uh, watching it progress go down the ceiling, and there's you know with all the machinery and stuff in there, you don't think the fire load is in there to burn and make the fire that it made, but it was it was unbelievable how big that fire got. It burnt the whole back end off of it. And I don't know how many thousand square feet that was, but it was tremendous. How many hours were you there? We were there. I was there the whole time. All of us were. You know, we'd go home, take a shower, and come back. Because only what would change is, is we changed shifts, the guys sitting on the fire truck would change. You'd go home, change, come back, go get do your time on the fire truck. And uh, and some guys, depending on how – and I think that's how it fell for us. I think we fought fire the most. I think, we, you know, just the way our shift fell, we weren't yeah. actually on the truck during the, the majority of that fire. But it, it was hot summertime. Everybody's galled. I mean, we were just man. miserable. Oh, bad. And <clears throat> as far as biggest square footage, but I tell you, when Southgate burnt, you remember when Southgate Plaza Southgate. burnt across from Murdoch's, which is future state. Oh, yes, shape, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When that burnt, you know, there was flames – 
hundred foot there coming out of that thing, and it was it was I can remember vividly just stepping back because the uh, we had the ladder truck set up there with the ladder extended. It was seventy five foot, you know, the ladder seventy five foot tall, and flames way above it, you know, because there was such a carbon load going up with the smoke. You could just see, you know, because that would catch on fire up through that cloud of smoke, and just watching that, it was just I was like. That is the coolest thing I've ever seen. You hate to be that way, but you're standing back there looking yeah. at that going, wow. That's that little boy inside yeah, exactly. of you. It really like, is. Ooh. It really yeah. is. And, uh, you know, that big grass fire we had that uh, over there on the east side yeah. of town. You remember yeah. that? Kind of like where the bypass It was like the apocalypse coming across there at us. And I really thought the east side of town was going to burn down. Really? If we had had 10 more mile-an-hour winds, we would not have stopped that fire. It really? would have burnt. It would have burnt to 412. There's no doubt in my mind it would have come. What did you do to stop that? <laughs> Water everywhere. <laughs> and there, it was it was hairy at times. I didn't think we were going to stop it. But, you know, there was enough plugs at the end of each street that we had fire trucks at the end of every street. And we called every volunteer department in the area. I think every volunteer fire department in Greene County was there. And, you know, we just. Yeah, it went how far? Had, that was it, a crazy fire. That it was, was only a, crazy, a few years yes. ago, right? Oh, yeah. That wasn't very – we got some really cool pictures of that. You know, well, the Daily Press showed up immediately and started taking some pictures of that. And uh, because, you know, because a big fire like that creates its own weather. Because <clears throat> the, the wind really wasn't blowing that much that day. But when you take that much energy, it starts building its own, you know, storm basically and its own wind and flows coming out of it. And if we'd have had a, a natural wind pushing that out of the south, say a 20-mile-an-hour wind, I don't think we'd ever stop that. Were you scared? Yes, when I because we were on shift that day, and I was on truck, and things were – I was hooking up hydrants. I never had my turnouts on. And I guess the guys on the trucks never did. But I remember we had that brand-new truck. Engine 5 was parked. That's where I was. Well, I was in the rescue truck, but I jumped out and started hooking up the hydrant and started hooking up the hand lines, you know, for everybody to start using – and the heat coming across, and I didn't have my turnouts on at the time. And the heat coming across her, I was laying in the grass, you know, on like lawn grass, it, the last house that was there, trying to keep the heat down because that wave of heat was coming over me. And I was like, this, well, it burnt the siding off those houses. And there was embers starting fires two to three blocks north of 412 you know the embers Jeez. and you know it was the right conditions you know so it could just it jump was dry out, yeah. oh yeah because you know them huge embers were just floating and you know landing in different yards starting you know just yards on fire and we had a structure fire in the middle of that and i don't know if that was related i forgot what the actual verdict of that was but we had a structure fire right in the middle of that big fire in the same area and I forgot what exactly happened on and that. I'm sure you had to be thinking, man, I don't know how I'm going to, how we're going to do to stop this oh, thing. Oh, yeah. I didn't think we would have. Have you ever had any uh, near death experience or any time where you thought, like, this is not a good situation? Like, I'm not in a good spot here. Back to that Martin fire. And I tell you, what kills big expanses kill a lot of firefighters. <clears throat> say, like, that, say that again. Buildings with huge expanses, you okay, know, like a okay. you know a big roof that yep. don't have any center support stuff like that. Okay, because what'll happen is the flames impinge it. You're inside, you know, the metal starts getting weak or the wood starts burning through and collapses. You're what kills a lot of guys, you know, when buildings yep. collapse in on top of them. And we were in Martin, <clears throat> and this is right on the front end. Me and Kyle Jackson, which he's the assistant now. I can remember us walking in big bay doors and it's full of smoke and there's heat and you can hear some things but you can't see you you can't see anything 
and we're we're I don't know how deep Martin is, but it's hundreds of feet across there. And we're probably 100, 150 feet inside the building. And there's a tow motor, which we don't know that's up there, is impinged by flames. <clears throat> and the gas tank on the back of it blevies or blows up. And Goodness. you could, it sounded like a bomb went off. I mean, we both hit the ground and it's like, okay, far enough, let's go. You know, <laughs> and it, you know stuff like that. And you, you absolutely cannot be claustrophobic and be a fireman. You just can't do it because everything we do, like people see this on TV that, oh, that's cool fire. You never see fire. All you see is darkness. You know, like Jeez, we, you, you see darkness, in which we have thermal imagers that help us see through that. But you're never really seeing, you know, like a TV depiction of a fire. You know, like you watch it's all not these. It's a lot No, not at all. <clears throat> because a true... Working structure fire, usually, unless it is vented, you're walking into complete blackness and heat. And, you know, and the the heat, you use your ears, basically, to determine how hot it really is in there. Because when you walk into something and your ears are burning, it's time to get to the floor. You know, because you can feel, because that's the only thing that's exposed enough of your skin to feel what's going on. So when your ears start burning, you're like, it's time. It's time to, to get-, get low. You know, because once that happens, you still can get low and not feel hardly any heat, you know, because the heat stays high unless it starts, them thermal layers start pushing it to the ground. But, you know, claustrophobia is not, <clears throat> you just can't be that way. And, you know, there's some really hot fires with lots of, you know, you can't see anything. And you can imagine going into a house you've never been in, full of smoke, going through there looking for a fire. Because a lot of times you're going room to room looking, where's this fire at? And uh, what the best, and if if you don't have your thermal image, imager with you, you're looking for a, just a faint orange glow, and uh, because that's all you'll really see through all the heavy smoke is a, uh, you know, just the glow of the fire, and then you'll hit it, and then what happens once you hit it, and if the room's hot enough, the way <clears throat> you can actually put a lot of fire out with minimal water, because the way that works, you know, you've got super, you know, the Thermal layers up against the roof or the ceiling are astronomical, you know, extreme heat. So what happens when you hit, you know, when you first bump the nozzle and you hit the ceiling, everything turns to steams because, you know, steam expands from water. And so therefore, 10 gallons of water may put that entire fire out because the entire room gets engulfed in steam immediately. Hmm. And so you feel that steam heat come back down on you. And uh, a lot of, in which really... I mean, don't get me wrong. We've been in some hot places before, and guys will walk out and their shields will be melted, and you go, "Wow, Jeez. was it hot in there?" Yeah. And then it's like, "Yeah, <laughs> it's it was." Bit, yes, man. but you know, that's the deal. A lot of times we're in attics. You know, you're let alone being you're in a tight spot. It's full of smoke, and you know, all you're hearing yourself breathing. You know, going through there, crawling through there, looking for the fire. I mean, it's. The faint of heart's really not. I mean, yeah. it's uh, you got to have your mind right. I mean, there's lots of times I've got to just chill out, task at hand. Yeah. What is the? Uh, I'm sure there's a physical test to become a firefighter. Is there like a we, mental test too? You just talking about? <laughs> there's like, not a mental okay. test actually, and there probably should be. But uh, physically, we do ju- we do have a small agility test that we do that you have to pass to even make it into the interview process, you know, just to see if you're in decent shape. And we don't make it too hard. Okay. 
and in which really physically the job's very physical don't get me wrong but it's not like say running or it's not like the leadville 100 it's not like that but it is a physical job Mm -hmm. you know what i mean it's not sitting behind a desk i mean there's times you're going to work your tail off but it's that's more or less kind of how it is it's work and you can you on the front end especially if you're the guys going in you'll be zapped i mean physically it'll drain you you know because you got to deal with the heat and you know everything you wear is claustrophobic and in the summertime it makes it that much worse yeah and i imagine it's an emotional uh strain as well oh yeah it's a it's an adrenaline dump out of this world you know because you know number one killer firefighter is a heart attack straight up but the thing is we'll go into you know in which you get used to sleeping and when, when tone goes off in the middle of the night at the fire station all the lights come on and the horn's screaming at you. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're like, you yeah. just, you can't, Wake which up. I have, I, I'm not going to say this, but I have maybe slipped through a tone or two and they have to come wake me up. But when you're up eight, nine, ten times a night, you kind of start blocking that, you did, that out. You know, it's like, oh, it's another tone, big deal. <laughs> you know, and before we started running medical, tone just didn't go off that much. And it would, it'd scare you to death when it'd go off, you know, and you, because the thing is, you go from zero to fighting fire in five to eight minutes. You know, you go from dead sleep to dressed in the truck on scene. You know, our, like our average response time once we hit, once we check in route, which means from the time we get out of the bed to the pickup and get on the radio and check that we're mm-hmm. in route, and then from the time we check in route to the actual fire or whatever we got going on, three minutes. I mean, so That's it's crazy. pretty phenomenal that we – in which they want us out. They want us in the truck in one minute. But in the middle of the night, you've got to give us a little leeway there because, you know, some guys sleep different. You know, some people will sleep in their T-shirt and just take their pants off. You know, some people sleep in their clothes, you know, just, you know, scared they're going to get left behind, yeah, you know. Yeah. But but anyway, you yeah. got to get up, dressed, out, you know, as quick as possible. So I could never make it, man. I'd be one of those guys that die of a heart attack pretty quickly. Like, if my – like, if my daughter – my little girl wakes me up in the middle of the night, like, you know, like standing over my bed, like, hey, dad. Like, my heart, like, starts pounding out of my chest and yeah. I can't go back to sleep. So I'm just like, oh, what's going on? So I can't imagine just this alarm. But, yeah, because we've got two different tones. And what's we've got a medical tone and we got a fire tone that comes out. So we know immediately, just by the, as soon as the tone, as soon as it starts going off, it's got a different pitch to it. So you know what's, you know, well, that's a medical run. Yep. So everybody's not going on that or, that's a you know full tone. We're going out structure fire. Something big's going on. Sure. So you know <clears throat> the different tones get you jacked up for and which I'm an adrenaline junkie. So you know I'm jacked every time it goes off. <laughs> you know what I mean? Especially if I'm not up to be on medical. Maybe not as much. But you know I always got my ear cracked listening to the radio, seeing if we're fixing going to car wreck yeah. or you know because it really is. It's an for me it's an adrenaline dump. Sure. Well. Speaking of that, let's talk about the Leadville 100. Um, for those who aren't familiar with it, give us the rundown of what exactly that is. The Leadville 100, <clears throat> it's a mountain bike race. And, I, and, well, I tell you, the second year I did it was the 25th anniversary of the Leadville 100, in which, is, in which I'd been in the since my late 20s. I did the Arkansas Mountain Bike Championship Series race series which craighead was the closest one we had and everything northwest arkansas central southwest you know they that's where most of the races were 
But anyway, I did that for 10, 13 years. It was a while I did that actual series in the race. But, you know, listen, you know, when you're in that kind of cycling community, you hear people talk about, man, did you hear about Leadville 100 or so-and-so did Leadville 100? And so anyway, I always heard about it and I thought, that'd be cool. You know, you know, that's like bucket list stuff, you know, like someday. You know, it was always one of them, one of these days I'm going to do that. You know, and years click by and it just – and then I forgot what year, <clears throat> because what's so cool about Leadville, cool and I don't know, crazy maybe a little bit, that, you know, the whole race, it's a it's 100 miles out and back. So basically you leave the town of Leadville, Colorado, mm-hmm. which is like 10,000, two or 300 feet in elevation, and you never get below, I don't know if you ever get below 9,000 feet. Wow. During the race, so it's a it's a hundred mile race at elevation, and it's an out and back. It's fifty out. You turn around, come fifty back. Actually, it's a hundred and three mile race, and yes, three miles makes a difference. So, you know, you hear like you know because they add a little loop there at the end of it and makes a hundred and three miles. But anyway, <clears throat> and then your tallest climb, you climb twelve thousand. I think I think Columbine climb is twelve thousand three hundred foot tall. But anyway. The it become popular once, uh, you know, when Lance Armstrong was at the peak of his fame, he come back from doing the Tour de France, and he went to Leadville to see if he was the you know, and he's a he's a solid mountain biker. You know, a lot of guys are just roadies or mountain bikers. You know, there's there's a big distinguishment. Oh, he's just a roadie, <laughs> but Lance was both. You know, he's a he's a true mountain biker. He can ride a mountain bike. And not really, and I'm not going to say Leadville's a super technical race. But anyway, he shows up. First year, he gets second place. But then the next year, they bring a film crew with them, make a movie about it. And then it blows up, gets huge. And to get into Leadville, the way it's always been years past, was it was just a lottery pick. You had to send your money in, and they threw all this, all your names in a hat, and started drawing out. You no preference points, nothing. And it kind of it changed toward the end, and I'll kind of get to that in a minute. But anyway, I started in which I was. Let's see, I'm old now. Let's see, I was probably 46. Well, no, I'd have been 44, 45, because and believe it or not, the average age of a person that is in the Leadville is 46 years old. Why is that? And biking is expensive. And to put in that much training, you've got to be a point in life to where your kids are kind of grown, you're financially stable enough that you can afford to go do this. So that's the big kicker of why the age makes a big difference. What do you mean afford to go do it? Like is the this the event <clears throat> the event itself expensive? The whole the first year I spent about ten grand just to go, but you know I bought a new bike in which okay. you show, that's what happens. I get in Leadville. I'm not going to take a use most people. If able, yeah. they got the best, you know, because the thing is, a quality bike may start at 2000 Okay. May go as high as twelve. But in between there, you want your bike to be as bulletproof as it can be. Yeah. You know, because if you get spending, there, you don't want it to break down. Exactly. You. you Exactly. You've put this much time, this much effort to get there. If I'm going to lose, it's not going to be because my chain breaks. Exactly. That's that's exactly why I bought the specific bike I bought for the race. Yeah, you remember that. You remember that uh, Craighead Forest race. <laughs> yeah. That ain't happened out of Leadville. Exactly. But anyway, so. What kind of bike did you buy? I bought a, uh, 
epic, a specialized epic, hardtail. And I did that simplicity. And plus, the hardest part was going to be the climbs. So I didn't want the full suspension bike robbing any power from me whatsoever. And you get into full suspension versus hardtail. And for me, weighing out the odds, the hardtail fit the picture better for me because you're not expending as much energy. And there's just not tons of places that a full suspension can outweigh the cost of the weight that you will be carrying up those mountains. Is everybody that's in that race going to have that same philosophy on the bike? Or is it no, even? Okay. probably probably a third of the people chose a hardtail over okay. – in, in which, don't get me wrong, I did tons of research on it, and I thought, I'm going hardtail. You know, because I had a full suspension bike, but I thought, I'm going hardtail because, to me, the simplest – if I make my bike as simple as it can be, because I don't want nothing to tear up. You know what I mean? I just, yeah. I want no issues. Yeah. And, you know, it's different from doing a 20-mile race. You can walk the last 10 if something happens. But in a 100-mile race, in the middle of nowhere, oh, yeah, dude. you know, you're just, you're done. You know, all this effort was for nothing. And it just, and it's not really, I think the to get in the race may have been three, $400, something like that. But that's just the very beginning of it. Because... Both years I did it, I stayed in uh, Leadville for two weeks straight. So, lodging, food, is that travel. Is that because you wanted your body to get acclimated? I wanted to, to the... get acclimated to the to the <clears throat> elevation. And have you ever been at elevation? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I never have. I mean, I've left from 400 feet. That's about where we're sitting at here. Yeah. To 10,000 feet. Yeah. I've never been in elevation. First two or three days, I was pretty sick. It makes a big difference. Yes. I was in uh, Quito, Ecuador, and it was around twelve to 13,000 feet. And, yeah, you go up the stairs. And you're out of the yeah, yes. you're Yeah, you're like, yes. oh, okay. and, and drained. There is no fat people there. I don't mean that bad. I just think physically it's so much harder on people that they burn so many more calories. And, uh, but you know, the thing was, I get out there sleeping at night, rolling over in my camper. I was out of breath. And, uh, I thought, this is crazy. Like, yeah, I ain't gonna and, make it. One of the, in which I went back, I did it twice. And the reason why I did it twice, the first year, I didn't get my buckle. You know, the whole point of that, I wanted that buckle. I wanted to, you know, have that buckle. Because you have buckle. to complete it in under 12 hours. Okay. To get the buckle. So first you time can, you did it, you completed in twelve hours, twenty minutes, oh, something like dang, that. <laughs> yeah. Dude. So let's. Don't I bet it. you were sick. Yes. Man. Well, well, uh, <clears throat> but looking back now, and just being a rookie at it the first year, there were so many things that I could have easily obtained because I really believe I was in much better shape the first year than I was the second year. I really think I was, but not knowing. What was going on, not knowing how the race, the whole event kind of works and how you can get yourself. Because I did the lottery, I think I did it for four years before I got my draw. You know, you send 50 bucks in. No, uh, sorry, you didn't get in this year. Did it for three years. And I was about to get, okay, this is this can't happen. You know, I, I didn't know anybody that's ever done it before. Ted did do it, but... Up till Ted did it, I had no idea how the whole event works, kind of being the insider, knowing how all the little inside things work. But the thing to really do, instead of get into the lottery pick, because what happened the first year, that last year, because I said I wasn't doing it anymore. I'm done. You know, this is off the bucket list. That year they waived the $50 fee, and all you had to do is, you know, uh, return email 
put your name address in instead of fifty dollars. I was like, man, I'm just blowing fifty bucks. All the you know, and lo and behold, no fee this year. So I went ahead and sent it, and I was in. I was like, <laughs> I mean. <laughs> I mean, it, I was pretty excited. Yeah. I was like, holy crap, the work starts today, you know. It's like, game on. Yeah. And So uh, how do you prep for that? And <clears throat> I tell you, around here, you know, being at 400 feet, and <laughs> don't get me wrong, we've got Crowley's Ridge, and you, in my way of thinking, which I may be wrong, but I've successfully completed it, so it worked for me, and it can't work for everybody. But physically, I can't sit on a bike for 12 hours. And pedal it. I just don't want to. Mm-hmm. I, it's not that I can't do it. It's just that it's not fun. Yeah. And the majority of my rides, and this is road miles, you know, maybe a 50, 60 mile. Every, you know, and me and Josh would go out, and that whole summer, every weekend, we'd do an epic ride on the weekend. You know, anywhere from 80 to 100 miles on You're the road. You're talking about Josh Hagee, by the way, yes. right? And, uh, <clears throat> you know, that was our routine. You know, through the week, I'd put in 30-mile rides here, 25, 20, and then on the weekends, we'd do one big epic ride. But the thing is, we could do that in five, six hours, get that ride out of the way. It's not sitting in the saddle for 12 hours. Mm-hmm. But I, to me, I'm not sitting in there for 12. I, just to, for training, I'm not doing that. I mean, it's, I can't. <laughs> you know, because my feet hurt, my butt hurts. I don't want to be sitting in the saddle physically for that long. Yeah. It's just not fun. Yeah. And I don't think you, you know, just even running a marathon, first marathon I ever ran, Farthest I ever run at that point was 10 miles. Really? And it was like, if I can make it 10, I can make it 26. <laughs> and uh, it's just, it's the monotony of it. Just not, it's just one foot in front of the other, one pedal stroke to the next. And the way I look at everything I do, I don't care if it's a mile run or a 100-mile bike ride, it's 50 miles from here on out, it's downhill. I'm halfway there. And once physically, once I make that top that mountain it's downhill from there and that's just how i view it and it just makes it better for me yeah do you think it's the competition that is able to keep you moving for longer because you're like hey man i'm not i'm not going to run more than 10 miles then you go to the marathon i'm not going to bike more than this many miles then you go into the 100 mile like is it just when you get there like you know what the competition is gonna push me oh yeah and which you're always you're always psyched up for that doing a little more than what you thought you could have you know what i mean and riding a little faster than what you can, ride running a little faster than what you can. But uh, but I <clears throat> like finishing in twelve hours. My goal, I want that buckle. Yeah, and that was my focus. All I got to do, finish in twelve hours. You know, and what's weird, kind of weird when it comes to time versus first, second, and third place. You're not chasing that guy. You just got to be better than him. But you got to be better than the clock when you're chasing the clock. Sure. And uh, all you're doing is calculating, okay, I need to average. I'm at mile 60. I need to average from this point out. I've got three hours to finish. You know, that's all my mindset was, was just. And don't they cut you off? Like, I watched that documentary. If you do not make your cutoff times, they cut you. And I made every one of my cutoff times the first time. And I got to the last, oh, my first year, I got to the last check station. In which I had a few technical problems with my shoes and just spent too much time sitting down. You know, they, should, they say never sit down, but when you're sitting on that bike for so long, that's all you want to do is get it out from under you. And which my wife was there. She was my, you know, 
without her that none of this could have, you know, I needed her support. She, mm-hmm. you know, as far as just the simple fact of saying, yes, do it. Mm-hmm. And then saying, yes, I don't care that you go ride your bike every day this week. And then on the weekend, you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. she, sure. tremendous. she had my back the whole time and she, you know, went out there with me and she crewed for me. You know, she met me at every checkpoint the first year and the second year too. But, you know, she, you know, she was the one saying, get up and go, you know, cause if I look back over that, if I would have just sat down for two minutes instead of five minutes, if I wouldn't have a shoe problem, I would have took home the buckle the first year. And and knowing my second year, knowing what I knew from the first year was the huge difference because what had happened in the when you're in the lottery, the way they've got this system set up, in which it's to make money. And I get how they do it to make money because they put on Lifetime puts on phenomenal events. Every race that I've done that they've put on, it's phenomenal. And it costs a lot of money to do that. But anyway, <clears throat> when you go lottery, they corral you. I think it's gold, silver, red, green, on down through the colors. And when you're a true lottery pick guy, they know nothing about you. Anybody could have threw their name in the hat. So they don't know if you're going to show up on a Huffy or if you're going to show up yeah. on a $10,000 yeah. bike. Yeah. So you get stuck in the back. So if you look at, you know, the first year I was like 1,500 people back. Wow. So we get to the first climb, in which it's called St. Kevin's, and the first three miles is downhill. And it's supposed to be a, just a neutral start. Everybody chillax. The race don't start till we hit the mountain. But – that's not how that works. It's full speed, full gas, straight out of the gate. Everybody's going because they, they're jockeying for position is what's sure. happening. But we get to St. Kevin's, and it's straight up. And I climbed it several times two weeks prior. And the thing is, it's so straight up, you're tanked immediately. Because if you push your heart rate too far, you can't get it back. So you, What do you mean by that? Especially at elevation. I blacked out three or four times up there. Because my body, not during the, well, one time during the race, but just the pre-riding before, just your body has no oxygen and you just pass smooth out. Because, you know, I'm used to almost 21% oxygen and I get up there and I don't know what that is, but I'm exerting myself like normal and I just don't have the oxygen to sustain consciousness, basically. So yeah, I it's like had to choked get, out by Max. Bishop. That's exactly what. That's exactly the same thing. Because I could remember. I'll try to get through. Let me get back to the how the lottery system works and kind of tell you how I learned and how elevation affected me that first year. So I started at the very back, the first year, and it's just because I don't know any better. I just thought you throw your name in a hat. And they, you know, they place you what, wherever. But I got placed in the back. So I've got 1,500 people starting in front of mm-hmm. me. The second year I did it, I was in the third corral back. But what had happened after the first year I didn't get my buckle, I was mad. I mean, just straight up mad at the world. Yeah. I hate mountain biking. I hate this place. I will never come back. <clears throat> I think it was two days later I'm at the fire station. I was over it. I started thinking, how do I get back next year? But after being there for two weeks with people that have done it several times and how they got there, then it's not through lottery pick. They'd go do qualifying races around the country. And so that's how you get those better corral positions is if you qualified, did a 
because what happens to do a qualifying race, you have to have a qualifying time. So you have to do that race in a certain amount of time. And then by luck of the draw, that race may have 20 coins, Leadville coins to pass out. A matter of they ask, are you, are you willing to, are you wanting a Leadville coin? If somebody says yes or no, you either get it or you don't. And it may go to the next guy if he's made that time. So learning all this, <clears throat> two weeks after the first year I did Leadville, I told Kim a weekend, I said, there's a qualifying race in Flagstaff, Arizona. I said, let's go. I want to go back. I want to go back to Leadville, and this is how I get back. I go qualify. I get my coin. That way I'm, you know, in next year for the race. So two weeks after I leave Leadville, <clears throat> I go to Flagstaff, do that. It's called the barn burner. I do that race. Same distance. The difference was it was 8,000 feet. Leadville took me 12 hours and 20-something minutes. I finished Flagstaff under eight hours. Wow. I had a sub-eight-hour time. Wow. That's the difference elevation, elevation made makes, on my yeah. body. You know, I was four hours faster, same distance, at 8,000 feet than I was at nine and 10,000 feet. Well, actually, 10 to 12,000 feet, really. But on average, I think it was like 9,000. But anyway, that got me into the next year. And I was sitting third corral back. I mean, I could see the pros sitting right there in front really? of me. But <clears throat> that's what sub-eight-hour time got you. You know, it got you up. I had a 1,200 people behind me this time instead of me being all yeah. those people out in front of me. Yeah. And so just time-wise was huge. You know, because one thing, because that's what is cool about that race. It's an out and back, so you meet the leaders coming back, which are the pros, in which, like, wow, pro, pro, pro. You know, because you're meeting them head-on. And the first year, if you look at the race, I was probably 40 miles in when I was meeting the pros coming the first year, you know, because here they come, wow. you know. They're two miles like, ahead of you. Yes. they Well, they would have been – if I was at 40, they were at 60. Oh, yeah, so they were, miles. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so they were 20 miles ahead of me because yeah. they had already made it to the top of Columbine and back down to it. Yeah. And then uh, <clears throat> the second year, they were less than 10 miles ahead of me. But so you don't cut get it in half, yeah. Yeah, so it was it was pretty amazing how just placement made a huge difference sure. in just time slot. Because my times, my split times weren't they were much better the second year. But the thing was, I didn't stay in the aid stations long. I didn't have any technical issues. I mean, things just operated a lot smoother. Because I really I finished in ten no I eleven twenty something I think. But I can remember. Coming through the last aid station, I said, I can walk this in, and I got this beat this time. You know, and there was a time my back was hurting so bad that <clears throat> I stopped, got off my bike, laid down on the pavement. There was a paved climb toward the last mountain that we climbed before we finished. There's a guy come screaming at me, dude, you got to hurry, you got to hurry. I'm like, dude, I got plenty of time. I got this. <laughs> because at that point, you know, you could get a big buckle, which is quite a bit bigger buckle, but it's a sub-nine-hour time. And then 12-hour time, you got a regular size belt buckle. And I knew I couldn't make sub-nine hours. It wasn't even in the ballpark. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm just kind of – once I hit the bottom of that climb there, I knew I had it. I mean, unless I had just major catastrophe on my bike, I had it. And, you know, I, I probably lost 30 minutes in the last little 10 miles just because I probably could have finished around 11 hours, but – I was just happy. Yeah, <laughs> so dude. I, could do, I got this. Yeah, what was that like to it was cross pretty, the finish line? I, I was all smiles. There's no doubt. You know what I mean? Because, And I tell you, what was bad was 
the year before, the way the race was going at different climbs, I kind of like, oh, crap, here comes that climb. It hurt so bad. But the second year wasn't that bad. Mm. You know what I mean? Because I can remember – that's why I stopped and stretched my back out before I made that climb because I remember how horrid that climb was the year before. And the second year, I just spun right up. I was like, no big deal. I was like, what was I worried about that for? You know, and once you make that peak – and even going into the final three miles the year before, I was suffering. I was horrible. And I remember having to get off my bike on a gravel road that didn't have much of a grade, but I just could not turn my legs over anymore. Wow. And second year, I just basically flew up it, you know, compared to the year before. Was that because and of the physical fitness? I think a little – I actually think the first year I was in better shape, but <clears throat> I had used different gear ratio on my bike. Okay. Which was huge because what the first year I didn't use a little enough gear, which gave me an easier spinning gear for the mountain climbs. So I was basically muscling up those climbs. And that tanked my legs. By the time I got back, my legs were fried. The second year, I hit them, and the game plan was just to drop the littlest gear, spin, don't burn as many, you know, because what happens if you stress your muscles too hard and try to push a lot with them you'll run into cramping issues versus if you just spin that out and don't use that muscle as much you'll have a greater chance of not you know ended up with cramps and all that it's about gear and it's about technique gear technique learn how to ride a bike i mean learn how to spin learning your body really you know because you know just because you have a certain pedal stroke going and you're using a certain muscle group you can change that muscle group up a little bit. You know, 30, 40 miles in, you're like, man, my legs are killing me. But you can change your stroke up a little bit and totally change all the little muscles you're using in your legs. And you can make it a lot easier. And then go back to let them rest a little while, go back. And that's the key to, I think, the endurance side of riding a bike, learning how to pedal your bike. And believe it or not, spinning circles, as silly as that sounds. But when you're clipped into your pedals, when you're able to spin circles, that's equally pulling up with one leg and pushing down on the other. And some people do that, but they're very jerky. And what you've got, instead of hitting them in the corners, you've got to just spin circles, make it smooth. And it's 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 a game changer. That's intense, man. How did you – so was there any moment in the first or second race where you felt like, man, I'm not going to make it? The first race at the third checkpoint <clears> – <throat> I'm like, when I pulled up, I told Kim, in which I made the cutoff time. So, yeah, right. statistically, I can make this. Absolutely. But I knew how I felt. I knew what was ahead of me. And all I've done is been playing numbers for the last four hours and what I got to average once I get through this checkpoint to finish. And I was walked in. I went in there. I sat down. Just, I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to make it. And Kim told me to shut up. You are. Mm-hmm. Just get on your mm-hmm. bike and go, you know. Mm-hmm. And she's pushed trying to get me out of there. And I can remember a lady that worked for the race. You know, she was there. She come up to me and she come up and said a few choice words to me and told me to get on that bike <laughs> and you finish this race. And it, I mean, my face had to be glowing red. I was so mad at her because she just walked up and got in my face. Like, yeah. I, like who are you, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. talking to me yeah, that yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. But I tell you, when I finished that race and I didn't get my buckle, <clears throat> my wife met me first, but that lady come up and hugged my neck. She, she told me, she said, yeah. I knew you could do it. And it was just pretty cool. 
Yeah, man. I imagine that was super emotional for your wife, too. Mm. You know, you Total that. strain on her. Yeah. I mean, because she worries about me, you know, especially when she's looking at her watch and knowing the times that I should be coming through and I haven't made it yet. And she knows and how much time you've put oh, into Oh, yeah, and she's work. freaking out. Like, we're, you yeah. know, and she she was just as disappointed as I was, but she was 100% on board when I – because, <clears throat> you know, because when she first – I said, we're driving to Flagstaff. She said, no, we're not. I said, <laughs> I'm, I said, I'm getting my buckle. And she said, okay, let's go. Wow. So she's drove a game with the, you know, the thing is both times coming back from Leadville, coming back from Flagstaff, we've not stopped. We've drove straight through both times. And I'm like, good for you for being able, but you know, I was so mad the first year. I just wanted to get home. I didn't care. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, dude. I'm not stopping anywhere. Yeah, just get me home. Yeah. Were you mad at yourself mainly? I was mad at myself and, you know, just looking back and thinking, you know, I, I blew this for myself, you know, and, mm-hmm. you know, because physically, I, physically I was there, just stupid choices along the way, not knowing better. And uh, the second year was much more enjoyable. I knew what was going on. And believe it or not, you meet people from all over the world. I think the all 50 states have people there <clears throat> from all 50 states, 30-something countries. I've talked to people from all over the world which is really cool because here you're not going to meet those kind of people mm. in which everybody's got a common interest in cycling, mm-hmm. which makes it cool. But mm-hmm. you'll run into people out riding. Where are you from? Oh, Australia or, you know, somewhere in Europe. And I'm like, that's just cool. Yeah. I'm from Arkansas. <laughs> you know, I'm from elevation 400 <laughs> feet. And, and I tell you what's funny. This, I don't I forgot if it was the first or second year climbing Columbine, which is the big climb. I'm chugging up, and I'm just sucking air. I'm just <gasps> – and uh, some dude's behind me. He said, hey, Flatlander, where are you from? <laughs> because what, what everybody thinks when you say you're from Arkansas, I don't know if you know the boom that's happening in northwest Arkansas as far as cycling goes. It's tremendous. It's mm. known – we're sitting second only to Colorado and mountain biking. Really? And we're fixing to take it over. Really? Why is the, that? The Walton Foundation. The Walton grandkids – or avid mountain bikers, and they have totally transformed Northwest Arkansas to be the premier cycling destination in the world. And they're putting their money where their mouth is. They've dumped twenty-five to thirty million in Northwest Arkansas wow. building trail, building infrastructure. It's incredible. But people, when you tell people now that you're from Arkansas. It's like, dude, I got to get there. But I'm like, hold on. I'm not from northwest Arkansas. <laughs> I'm from the rice fields of Arkansas. <laughs> you but, can go ride the St. Francis Levy. Oh, yeah, exactly. And uh, But northwest Arkansas, huge boom. And uh, it's it's super cool that they have dumped that much money into it because it has totally changed. I mean, it's not going to be too many more years. If you, you look at YouTube and look up Bentonville, Arkansas, mountain biking and cycling hmm. and just that whole lifestyle over there. It's booming over there. And anybody you talk to around the world, when it comes to cycling, you say you're from Arkansas, they know what Arkansas Mm. is to cycling because it's it's number two in popularity next to Colorado. But I really believe Arkansas will overtake that shortly. Wow. That's pretty incredible. It it is very cool. Very cool. Cool. How did you um how did you dig deep whenever your body was just kind of screaming at you and saying like just quit? Like, stay down, don't get back up. Like, where did you – how did you do that? Because the reason I, I want to ask that question is whether it's mountain biking or just life in general, there are those times where 
our bodies, our minds, whatever it is, other people are kind of in our ear saying, give up, don't keep going. So how did you personally continue to press forward? Just the fact of, I don't like it. And not that anybody did, but there's plenty of people say, that's stupid, that's crazy, you can't do that. Yeah, because I truly believe a person can absolutely do anything they set their mind to. I mean, it's because what amazes me about the ultra marathon, ultra event world is the mentality of it. It's not that these people, don't get me wrong, they're physically fit. I mean, by a long shot, they're pretty physically fit, but physically fit only takes you to a place. Yeah. And the mental challenge at that point is what takes people through the darkness to finish like to finish an event like that and to push through. And that's something I searched for, and maybe I found it, maybe I haven't. But I tell you, when <clears throat> Josh did the AT100, which is the Arkansas Trailer 100, 100-mile 100 run, mm-hmm. I ran with him from mile – 60 to 82, 85, something like that. Middle of the night, me and him was just chugging down through there. And they got Kool-Aid stations along the way. So Josh is probably mile 70 in this run. He's been running all day. You know, we're, we're, he's, I don't know, 18, 20 hours into this run. And he said, dude, he said, I think I got some blisters. And <clears throat> we pull up to this aid station, and just so happened there's an EMT guy there, has a little experience with prepping blisters. He's got his med bag there, and Josh says, hey, man, you care to take a look at my feet and do what you can with these blisters, these blisters I got on my feet? And uh, he said, sure. He pulled off. Josh sat down, in which, you know, we're probably – I'm 15 miles into my run, and I'm like, man, I'm suffering, but I'm like, I'm not going to let Josh Josh know this. You know, know, my job is to keep him pumped up and keep on going, you know. And uh, me thinking, he's 70 miles into this or whatever he is. But he sits down on that. This guy takes his shoes off, takes his socks off. And the first words out of that dude's mouth was, sweet Jesus. And I looked at the bottom of his feet, and his entire foot, the entire foot was one solid blister. Oh, my gosh. And I thought, I just looked. I thought, man, we're done. I I never said that, but I thought, we're done. You know, he can't keep running like this. But that guy, you know, lanced the blisters, doctored them, you know, put something on set his feet on fire. But anyway, Josh got back in and kept running. I don't know if I could do that. Maybe I can. You know what I mean? But that that adversity, getting through that, I think, sure, I did that at Leadville, but I think a tougher events, and I think I'm kind of chasing where does that come from. It's just yeah. – it kind of blows my mind a little bit. Maybe I've got some of it. Maybe I don't. Yeah, you've got some of it for sure. But it's just that quest. And I tell you, a lot of ultra – event guys that are phenomenal they are addictive personalities a lot of them are drug addicted to drugs but that's their gateway out yeah. they turn their, their addictions yeah. into running hmm. cycling you know what i mean but some of the best ultra runners in the world that have incredible stories they turn from addict into i can run 200 miles non-stop as fast as any human on the planet that's just kind of weird how they can and I tell you, a dude, to look up. <clears throat> Do you remember that movie that came out a few years ago? It was probably several years now, probably ten years ago. But the dude that was hiking in a canyon and got his arm 
wedged yeah. in between two rocks and he cut yeah. off with a dull pocket yeah. knife. He's one of the premier ultra runners in the world. I look at that dude and think, where does that mental toughness come? You know what I mean? Yeah. And apparently he's got it. If he's yeah. one of the premier ultra runners in yeah. the world, he's got that, you know, and it's just, it's a cool thing to, you know, the men, the mental part of the ultra type stuff is intriguing to me is actually doing it. You know what I mean? It's just, I would, where is, you can't go anymore. You know what I mean? Cause I, I, I watch a lot of stuff on YouTube and guys that just mm-hmm. do impossible stuff and I don't have a knee pain. I think I can't go on. And I think, you know, this dude running on a broke leg for 20 miles. Yeah, I can. You know what I mean? Yeah. So don't yeah. – they're just excuses. You know, just, you know, from a person sitting on the couch and running a marathon, I can't do that. Yeah, you can. You know, just you got to take the first step. you got to set it. And, you know, that's my deal. At the beginning of every year, we'll pick out events to do because I'm kind of a goal-oriented person. If I've got a goal out there, I'm going to work to achieve that goal. But if I ain't got no event or anything coming up, I'm going to sit around and eat junk food oh, all man, the time. Oh, man, dude, that's, that's, huge. You know, that's every human, man. Yeah, I mean, that's what I'm going to do. But as long as I keep that focus and always have events planned out front, it keeps me motivated into the fact of, I really don't want to ride this morning, but I need to. So I am. And, yeah. uh, they call them smart goals, specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, yes, time-sensitive. Yes. You know, right. You because, set one you know, of those, you got a good chance. Of exactly, hitting. that's that's the thing, you know. In which I'm a, uh, I always said goals I can't meet, you know, like times and like mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I'm fixing to go do this and so and so time and I never make it. But I think that keeps me striving to the, you know, next thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. And keeps me pushing on. But you know, time wise, you know, two jobs, it's hard to find. I would love to have one year that all I did was fire department. And see how good I could be. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? To just ride. You know, because, you know, making that kind of time to get out and run and ride all the time, it's tough. It really sure. is. But It's another it, job, right? Exactly. But, you know, and I do commute to work. I ride my bike to work, you know, carry my stuff with me. But, you know, I may leave the house at 3.30 in the morning and ride 25, 30 miles. How far? Is that how far you are from the No, station? I'm seven miles. But okay. I do a big loop around oh, town so I can okay. get extra miles in, you know, so to make sure I can get a ride in. Because you never know what's going to happen in the afternoons, and you know you may plan a ride, but that plan may fall apart. Are you doing that even the winter? I when it hits about thirty to thirty-five, I don't even like riding. (laughs) But thirty-five and plus, I usually ride every day, and which I always, in which I haven't. Well, I had a little bit of a back issue last fall, and I haven't rode my bike in a while to work. But the normal, in which I've rode in twenty-degree weather to work. But usually it's funner <laughs> to run oh, sure. when it's about mid thirties for the low is about my stopping point of saying, okay, let's go ride to work. Yeah. yeah. That mental toughness is huge, man. If you ever, I don't know if you've ever um, followed the Navy SEALs, but you know, I, I've, I've, I've read books from Navy SEALs and listened to podcasts on Navy SEALs. And they'll all say that when you show up to buds, like you'll have these guys who are jacked that were like D one athletes. And you're like, Oh, that guy's going to dominate the competition. And they're the first ones to ring the bell. And then these other guys who like, don't look like athletes at all. Like they're the ones that end up like, you know, sustaining them, like making it all the way through buds. And it's all about mental toughness. Yeah. So I'm curious and uh, we'll end here. There's so much more I know we could talk about. We'd love to have you back on, but you know, let's say there's someone listening to this and they've been inspired somewhat. Um, and they're like, man, I, I want to get in shape. But then there's another part of them that's like, man, 
you know, whether it's swimming or biking or whatever they want to do, but they're just like I, I, weight training. Like, I just don't think I have what it takes. And they're starting to make some of those excuses. What advice would you give? And you've kind of mentioned this a little bit, but anything else that you would say to that person? Baby steps. You know, if you have been a couch potato your whole life, never been a real athlete in school, but it's a, if there's an appeal there or a reason that you say, I would like to do that, but I can't, such a small goal. It may be, okay, I'm going to walk a mile today. I, I may get to the point, okay, I'm going to run a mile today. Mm-hmm. You know, hey, there's a 5K coming up this fall. I think I'm going to run that. You know what I mean? Just mm-hmm. take baby steps. Yeah. And, and I tell you, running – to me, <clears throat> a lot of people can run two, three miles very fast, but they say that's all they can run. I don't believe that. If you can run two or three miles fast, you can run 20 miles. I really believe that mm-hmm. because I don't know that I've ever started off a run in the first half mile think, I'm not going to make it. You know, we're going out to run 15 this morning, and I'm like, I'm not going to make it too. Yeah. But lo and behold – a little while into the run, your body starts loosening up. Everything starts firing on all cylinders. Next thing you know, you're 10 miles into this run feeling great. I mean, it's just the body is an amazing thing, and you kind of got to learn your own body. You know what I mean? Some people may experience that differently than I do, but I know that, okay, this early on pain is going to leave me in a little bit, and once I get firing on all cylinders, I'm going to be able to keep on going. Yeah, that's, hel- that's helpful. I have, just- you know, if – you know, depending on where you're at physically, take baby steps or, you know, set big goals. You know, and that may be because I tell you, I don't know if you ever watched like the Iron Man stuff, the inspirational side of the Iron Man and watching some of these people's stories. Mm-hmm. You know, and there's lots of people that went from the couch to finishing Iron Man in a year. And you think, that's incredible. I mean, it's inspiring. It really is. I mean, it inspires me. It is, man. And it just affirms, I shared this with our church. Um, I guess it was a couple of weeks ago about my wife who just finished her back in November, her first ever half marathon. And, you know, it was a year before that she couldn't even run a quarter mile and she got tired of being out of shape. And she's like, you know what? I'm going to lose some weight. I'm going to start eating healthier. And so she started with walking a quarter mile and then running it and then running a half a mile, then running a mile. And eventually she worked up to the half marathon that she completed. And it's those, it's what you, it's, it's two things that you hit on. It's a goal. I want to run this. I want to be able to run a half marathon. And here's what I've got to do to get there. That's, again, specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, time-sensitive, and it's baby steps. And that's one of the things that even Josh hit on whenever he was on the podcast was, man, like, if you try to go right out and do this, like, you know, whatever, run a marathon or half marathon, you've never done it before. Like, you're going to be miserable. Mm -hmm. And you're going to begin to believe the lie, I could never run a half marathon. And that's not true. It's just that you can't run it yet. But with baby steps and with smart goals, eventually you can. Because like you said, man, I mean, it's incredible. It's the mind that typically stops us, not the body. Would you agree with that? I 100%. 100% believe that. Because I really believe you can do anything you set your mind to. Anything. Yeah. You know, and it may be making a billion dollars, you know. That's just really not been my deal, you know what I mean? Because, you know, driven people, you know, they're successful for a reason. You yeah. know, they don't give up. They don't quit. And if they fail once, they keep on going at it. You and know that's what I mean? huge there, man. Oh, yeah. Of not being afraid yeah. of failure. So many people, I feel like there's there's dreams they have in their heart. There's passions. There's there's things they want to be able to accomplish, but they're so afraid of failure. And if you're afraid of failure, you're never going to accomplish 
yeah. things. Oh, yeah, because I set too many goals, and I come up short all the time, but it, it just keeps me driving for bigger ones. Yeah, I so. love it, man. Well, Greg, thanks so much for coming on. It's awesome to be able to spend time with you and look forward to being able, being able to do it again soon. You bet. You bet. Be glad to come back. All right, so that was Greg Webb. Bill, as a uh, cyclist, that had to be pretty inspiring for you. Intimidating might be a better word. <laughs> Intimidating. Um, man, I love having a guy like Greg come on who, yeah, for me, what was good about listening to him talk was just like, man, here's a guy who, you know, later in life, you know, it's just like, yeah, I think I'm going to start biking. And then it was just a reminder of like, man, if you work hard at something, I mean, over time, like you're going to get good at it, like really good at it. And so, um, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, it's a reminder to me of the importance of hard work, the importance of not being afraid to fail, the importance of being willing to push through some of the pain, um, some of the suffering and know that, man, there's a reward that when you do that. So, Greg, uh, thanks for coming on to those of you who are listening as always. Uh, thank you for tuning in. If you have not done so, give us a like on iTunes. That helps people find us. Um, also, check us out on all the social media platforms, you know, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. You can go to our website as well, paragoldpodcast.com. Thanks for listening, and until next time.